Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am your host, Cindy House. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, you got a chance to listen to our brand new guest host, Lizzie No's debut episode, which was posted last week. She interviewed the one and only Amethyst Kia. If you missed it, check out uh, basicfolk.com or wherever you get podcasts. You can listen to it. It is a great conversation. Okay, on to today. So happy and thrilled to have Joe Pug on. Joe Pug explains that the Venn diagram of his fans and the people he'd like to have a beer with is almost exactly a single circle. The prolific troubadour has been organically gaining admirers one by one throughout his entire musical history. When he began, the Maryland song writer would not only give away copies of his music, but he would send multiple copies to Joe Pug converts so they could distribute among their friends. This and many other similar acts have earned him a loyal fan base that allow him a career in music versus carpentry, which is his other trade. His success can be attributed to learning to, quote, keep it skinny in terms of preserving resources in his work in addition to his timeless charm and sharp sense of humor. Not to mention, his songwriting is reminiscent of some of literature's finest, like Walt Whitman, John Steinbeck, Raymond Carver, and Cormac McCarthy, who he counts as large, looming influences. There is a legendary tale about the night Joe Pug quit college and ran off to Chicago to pursue his musical dreams. It was the eve of his senior year at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where he'd been studying playwriting. Pug experienced this intense feeling that he just needed to go to Chicago and write songs and play music. He speaks to how that moment translated into the mystical for him and how his relationship to his intuition has been since that moment. He also speaks about touring with Steve Earle, one of his early big breaks, and what he's learned about keeping it clean and sober on the road, something he actually still struggles with. We talk about his incredibly adored podcast, The Working Songwriter, where he talks shop with some of today's finest songwriters. And we get into his latest, The Diving Sun, a collection of various studio sessions with producer Dwayne Lundy and Kenneth Pattengale, along with new songs recorded in quarantine. I just loved talking to Joe. Hope you enjoy it as well. We'll take a listen to a song from Joe Pug, then we'll get into our conversation. Here's Crescent Bridge from Joe Pug on Basic Folk. All night for you to look my way 
Cool, Joe Pug. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's nice to see you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your hometown of Greenbelt, Maryland, which um, I understand was like a co-op. The entire town is a co-op founded by FDR in the 30s. And you grew up in like a co-op situation. Um, how do you think that experience has impacted your relationship to other people and to community? It definitely made me aware of uh, the New Deal, um, you know, FDR's New Deal. The first concert venue I ever played at was a cafe in town called the New Deal Cafe. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely made me very aware of sort of this golden era of um, uh, progressive politics and uh, and organizing in, in the United States. Mm. Music in your house was prevalent. Your dad was in a band. He played the piano and he did play out. He got you your first guitar and lessons. What about his musicianship like most inspired you as a kid? And how do you see him in yourself when it comes to creative expression? I'm really close to both my parents. Uh, I'm very close to my dad. Uh, always have been. My father... Um as you said, got me into music and, and exposed me to a lot of music. To this day, since he retired, my, my father travels with me on the road when I go on tour and, and sells merchandise for me. If anyone's been to one of my shows in the last four or five years and they've bought a record or something, they've bought it from my dad. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's neat. It's a, it's a family business. I, my own musical path is is pretty inextricable from my dad's i i don't know that i'd be doing this for a living or, or doing it at all if it weren't for my dad um and obviously don't leave my mom out there either you know she she supported me for sure uh, the whole way through and and all that and has wonderful taste in music and and always i still run my demos uh by my mom you know what i mean so uh but yeah i mean it, it's a it's a particularly special relationship I have with my dad, and I think that um, in some ways his journey became my journey, and and uh, and we share that together to this day. Mm. What is your mom's feedback like when you play her your demos? Is she honest? Very detailed. My mom was a computer programmer for many years, so just very long emails with uh, lots of different bullet points and and stuff like that. Wow. Um, so your dad also worked as a carpenter as you did for a while. Um, what did he teach you about the trade? And then like, what did you learn from him about work ethic? Well, my dad, I think I learned more from my dad about running a business than I necessarily did about, um, the trade itself. And 
you know, because when you're an independent musician, you're basically just running a, a tiny little small business. You yeah. know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and uh, one thing he's always stressed to me from the very beginning was always just keep it skinny, keep it skinny, keep it skinny, which means you keep your costs down. And if you keep your costs down, then you can afford to make less money and still stay in business. And, you know, making a living in the arts is really, really difficult. And it can't happen unless you get super lucky, which some people do. And that's great. Mm-hmm. Or if you're, if you're really, really, really responsible about um, the liabilities that you take on, you know, mm. and, um, and you just have to be because there's just not, it's really, really hard to monetize creativity, I have found in my experience over the last 10 to 15 years. You're very funny. Um, on your podcast, in your interviews, you have this like wildly dry sense of humor where did your sense of humor come from and how have you like used humor throughout your life? If it, um, like how your family treated humor and, um, was funny together. Yeah. Again, like very close family unit. I'm very close with my folks and I have a little sister, um, about three years younger than me. So the four of us were always, you know, thick as thieves. Uh, when I was growing up, I had a really idyllic childhood. I got to say, I, I'm a very lucky person. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, humor was always at the forefront of that. And now that I have a family myself, you know, my wife and I have two kids. We have another one on the way. Oh, like congrats. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, we really, you know, we're always joking around with our kids. Now that doesn't mean when I was growing up that there was no boundaries that there was no authority from my parents and same with me you know to my kids like i think it's important that there is kind of a pecking order in a family to a certain degree but that doesn't mean you know that you can't um intersperse all that with with some some joy and and some some livelihood you know Hmm. how do you actually say your real last name pugliese Pugliese. All right. Glad I asked. I would not have guessed that. I looked it up on Google Translate in Italian and it was like, yeah, it was, it was even more Italian than that. I know the the most common place you'll find that name is actually, uh, uh, there's a certain type of bread that comes out of that region. The region is Puglia in um, Italy. So Pugliese means of Puglia, roughly translated, I guess. I don't know. I don't speak Italian, but yeah. Have you had the bread? You'll see it a lot. I have had the bread. It's good. Yeah. What's it like? Well, I generally like any sort of carbohydrate whatsoever. (laughs) I like any kind of bread. So, I mean, I'm not going to argue with any of them. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So, Joe Pug is your stage name. uh, And you said it was like kind of a way to like compartmentalize like the two parts of your life, like the personal side and the professional side. Yeah, I, I originally used it because... It was, um, I just thought a little snappier, maybe looked a little bit better on a marquee. Uh, but as you just said right there, it, it has actually been a really nice system for me to compartmentalize. Uh, it really has. My son came to the, uh, one of his first shows of mine that he's ever come to um, last week because, you know, we're coming back from COVID and playing shows again. And, um, at the show, he was referring to me as Joe Pug. You know what I mean? And he's never referred, I've never heard him say that before, ever. And I spent a lot of time with my son. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with him before COVID and over COVID. You know, my wife was still working. So I just, I spent like 
all the time with my yeah. son and my daughter. And um, I'd never heard him say it before, but then at the show, he said it. And I was like, oh, cool. That That's a good thing. I think that's a really good thing that that almost seems like a different person hmm. to him, you know? That's like, uh, I've heard Brandy Carlisle talk about, like, her sister starts doing her hair. And uh, I think, like, her niece will come over to her and be like, oh, you're making Brandy Carlisle. Instead of, like, Auntie Brandy, she's, like, becomes Brandy Carlisle. That's that's a great, and there's like a physical embodiment of it right there. You know yeah. what I mean? What do you, and, yeah. Uh, what is that? Is there like a physical embodiment for you? You know, a couple of years ago, I started wearing a suit on stage. And I think that's, I think that was part of it. You know, I got a lot of crap um, from some of the people that I work with. They're like, oh man, you know, you look too stuffy or too conservative or something like that. And fair enough. Like maybe it does come off like that to some people who who aren't too familiar um, with my sound. But um, to me, there was something, I didn't want to just wear what I normally wear, except a little bit nicer on stage. I, I wanted it to be some sort of embodiment of, mm. I'm going to turn into this this other person right now. Does it work for you? It does, very yeah. much so. Yep. But, cool. And, you know, more almost more important than um, being able to put it on for the show is being able to, you know, after you play the show, I'm still at a at a point uh, where I, you know, I go out and talk to people, anyone mm -hmm. who wants to talk after a show. So after you do the show and go to talk to everybody, even more important is being able to take it off um, afterwards. And uh, yeah, you know, just um, step back into your normal flow of life. Do you, you wear the suit to the merch table? Oh yeah. Got yeah. to. Yeah, totally. To. You're, you're, you're still <laughs> in that mode, you know? So you're talking about playing um, at the New Deal Cafe in your hometown. Um, how did you first feel about performing in front of people and how has that evolved? From day one, I've always loved it. My, my grandfather was a theater, a professor of theater at the University of Maryland, near where we grew up. Rudy. And Rudy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Rudy Pouillet. And uh, so he... <laughs> when I was like five or six years old, we had this competition in Maryland called Odyssey of the Mind. Okay, it's a really weird thing where half of it is for Kim's kids that are like STEM brained. So they'll have like, you know, you build some sort of structure that can hold weight. I don't know. They were engineering kids. I wasn't in mm. that. In, and then the other part of it is for kids that are more into uh, more artsy performance things. Obviously, I was in that. Mm. And so my grandfather came in to help out, you know donate some time to help us put together this little skit that we were going to do. And he told me later, I, I don't remember it, that we rehearsed for weeks for this skit. And then the moment when I got on stage and there was an audience in front of me, I just immediately got rid of the script and kind of started freestyling to get like some approbation <laughs> from uh, the kids in the audience. And uh, he was like, yeah, that's when I knew that you were, uh, that you <laughs> were screwed, man. You were really bitten by this bug. And, and, um, it's been like that ever since. I, I really enjoy performing in front of people and, and galvanizing the, the separate people in a group into one organism together. Mm. Oh, that's cool. How has all the live streaming over the course of the pandemic impacted your connection with performing? It's an excellent question, particularly on the heels of this live show that I just played. I never used to take requests at shows, at live shows, um, for a couple different reasons. One of the main reasons was I, I just got so used to playing what I thought were the most popular songs in my catalog for an audience. Um, I, I really, 
I, I don't know what my fixation was with that, um, but I, I just really felt like, well, people are making the drive to see the show, and I, I just really want to play the songs that they, they want to hear. But turns out it was kind of a misleading way to go about things because I, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily choosing the songs um, correctly that, that people wanted to hear. And, and over the course of this live streaming thing that we've done, requests are, of course, a, a big part of that. And I realized people wanted to hear much different songs than, than I thought they wanted to hear. And that made me bone up on a bunch of songs I wouldn't normally play. So I, I practiced them and got them part of my repertoire again. And so when I just got to play this show again recently, I actually played a shorter body of the set so that I could, you know, spend the last 30 minutes just taking requests and since I boned up on all these songs, um, I was good to go. I, I was kind of ready for anything that anyone wanted to throw at me, no, how, mm. no matter how obscure it was in my catalog. So um, I don't know how it'll go going forward, but that did feel really yeah. good. Uh, we did two nights in a row at the same club and it, it felt good both nights. Sounds like you become more agile. Yeah, bit, yeah to yeah. a certain degree. That's yeah. a good word for it. Okay. Um, this question is about your intuition. It starts when you left the University of North Carolina you went there to study playwriting, and the famous story is that you left for Chicago the day before your senior classes started. So you had this like intense feeling that you just needed to go to Chicago. You needed to write songs. You needed to play music. So um, what did that moment that felt so sure to you, and maybe maybe it taught you nothing, but teach you about instinct and intuition and how in touch with intuition are you on a regular basis? What that particular instance of intuition taught me was how rare it is to actually, in a lifetime, completely follow uh, your intuition. Because that, that move uh, that I made based solely on a gut feeling. To say it was the right move does not even begin to tell the half of it. It, it was, it changed my entire life. It, it changed what I would end up doing for a living. It's, it was such the right call that I, I can barely believe that I made it in retrospect. So what I've learned from that is how rare it is to actually act on those instincts. And, and this is coming from a person here, here I am telling you, it was a gut feeling I followed the gut feeling. It was absolutely right, and it changed my life for the better in an immeasurable way. And yet, I still have, I'm still crippled by an inability to do that on a regular basis or even mm. come close to it. You know, there's probably, I ha probably five times in my life that I've completely followed an intuition. All five times, it's worked out great. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and yet still, I can't, I find myself constantly on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, uh, not listening to that gut feeling. And I don't know what that cognitive dissonance is that, that I can know. Well, I guess that's the most human thing of all, right? We know exactly how we should act and we don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We all know how to be a good person and we all on a daily basis usually you know, fail to live up to that in, in many ways. And, and I think this is a similar thing. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that, that's what I've learned from it is how rare it is. And even when you know it's the right thing, it's still really hard in the moment. It seems like when talking about making that choice to, to leave for Chicago, like it's so like you seem like so emotionally charged talking about it, almost almost like on like a cosmic level. That is certainly the first time that I ever even considered uh, whether God existed or not. I just never, I grew up in a relatively agnostic and secular household. And so 
I, I'm not being glib when I say that, like, I hadn't really considered before that whether mm. God existed or not. I just didn't. It was just so not a part of my worldview. And that was, yeah, so that was the first time that I felt the presence of, of God, I would mm. say. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say spiritual, but I didn't know if, uh, if it actually went there. But that's, that's amazing. Uh, so you are also known for giving out your music like crazy, sending music to people to give to their friends, passing out samplers to people for free. And the results actually like started rolling in. You'd say like suddenly you'd be coming to towns you'd never been to before and there'd be crowds of people there who knew the songs. And you said our fans essentially became like a radio station for us and they still are. So how did those first interactions with listeners solidify that type of connection you have with your fans? And where do you experience that today? That sort of grassroots, genuinely grassroots connection uh, with fans, I just experienced it over the last year because, you know, 85% of the revenue of my business dropped out when we couldn't play live anymore. Mm -hmm. And through through the Sunday night live streams that we do, through uh, support of the podcast that I do, through fans just buying merchandise and stuff like that, they they kept me afloat for a whole year. I, I would not be in the music business right now if it weren't for this core group of people that really believes in, in what I do. Um, and I know there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of musicians who are doing different jobs at, as as COVID hopefully now goes away and, and life returns to normal again. We're going to see a lot of people who, who weren't able to make it through. I feel very fortunate that it looks like I will be able to make it through. And the only reason for that, um, the only reason that I don't have my electrician certificate right now, and I'm you know, out working for a company doing that to support my family, is because uh, listeners um, stepped up and they supported me for a year. Mm. It's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. So I've met you one time in real life, and it's so funny because like we met and we talked for like three minutes, but you know, and, and I'm a radio DJ and have been playing your music for years and years, but it feels like when I think of you, I'm like, oh, that's my friend Joe Pug. Like we do not know each other, but I still feel like there's this like connection that you give off, even if it's like. For, you know, 90 seconds, like you're able to really connect with someone. I don't know if you if you find that to be true or if you see that in yourself. Or maybe it's just like you and I have a very special friendship that we don't know about. <laughs> maybe it's that, Cindy. Maybe it's that. I, uh, I don't know. I, I do find that, you know, some bands, they play music and it has a bunch of fans, but they don't like they don't connect with the fans and like they aren't friends with them and like they don't like the type of people who are friends of their music or fans of their music. Mm. That's like a thing. I, I've met bands like that who don't. The last thing that they would ever want to do is go talk to people at a merch table, Jeez. talk to people outside their tour bus because um, they don't these don't like them. For me, the crossover between people who dig my music and people who I would be glad to have a beer with that Venn diagram is almost like a circle. You know, it's almost just I like, see. it's, it's like not even two 90, circles. <laughs> yes. It's like 99% the same people. I, I really, so yeah, I mean, I think my creative, creative work has, has tended to draw people towards me and me towards people who uh, look at the world 
in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's going to take me a second to set this question up, um, but it's okay. about opening for Steve Earle, um, one of your early big breaks. You're 23 years old, and you've talked about him really like teaching you everything and stuff that you still use on a daily basis. I think it was like a month-long tour, but it was a big deal. And something that I was thinking about when reading up on you was Steve's impact on you when it came to like living cleanly. Like He is a sober person, um, and you... Uh, in more recent years, nearly burnt out from touring and took a break. And you said when you're playing that many shows, you either burn out um, or you keep yourself going by doing a bunch of drugs and there's no two ways about it. And you just like burned yourself out. So um, in thinking about that and in thinking about the fact that like you were on tour with Steve Earle, there was a moment I read about where you were smoking a cigarette and he told you to quit And then you were like, well, I like cigarettes. And he said, well, I like heroin, but I had to stop doing that. Um, So like, what did Steve teach you about staying away from drugs, staying away from vices on the road or in general, like, what have you learned about being a sober and healthy person when it comes to touring? Well, you know, when I was getting ready to be a parent, I was very nervous about it. Um, And I ended up going to... uh, to talk to somebody about it. And when I was talking uh, to this professional, I told her, I said, you know, I'm really worried about, you know, what am I going to tell my kids? You know, how do I tell them to act? And she said to me, your kids aren't going to listen to a word that you say, but they're going to watch everything that you do. Mm-hmm. And I've really found that to be the case so far as a parent. And um, that is kind of what I took away from touring with Steve. It wasn't necessarily anything he said, but you know, uh, he was someone that I looked up to so I could watch what he did on, on a night-to-night basis. And I never knew Steve when he uh, wasn't sober. So I don't know what that looked like. But I do know what it looks like now that uh, he is. And um, I knew that he was performing on a level and um, and running his business on a level. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, I said, well, I got to get there. and Maybe I'll emulate some of these habits of his. And to be fair, though, um, you know, I'm not, I don't drink uh, before shows anymore, but I'm not, I'm not sober. I'm not a sober person. Mm -hmm. Um, And alcohol is something that I still struggle with um, quite a bit, to be frank with you. Mm. Yeah. Um, So when you did cut back on touring a few years ago, you learned that you could be more like fully engaged with shows that you were playing. Uh, and actually like enjoy yourself. Um, what did it feel like to like kind of make that realization and experience joy in live music again? I, I keep on going back to this last weekend of, of playing shows again. It was my first club shows back in a year and a half. Um, and I think that that would be the purest distillation of what you're talking about. You know, what's really great about it to to come through the other end. When I first started playing music, I felt a lot of joy playing it for people but I didn't know how to do it at all. I wasn't good at my instrument. I wasn't necessarily good um, at singing. I wasn't good at being able to repeat a show night after night. I wasn't good at uh, handling an audience, any of that stuff. And not to say that I'm like a master at it or anything or great at it now, but I'm certainly much better than I was. So to have gone from 
really enjoying it, but being like pretty incompetent at it to slowly becoming more and more competent at it, but not enjoying it anymore. It's like a kind of, I'm at a place right now getting to do it last weekend live where it's like, I'm enjoying it again. And I'm much more competent at it than I used to be. Mm. And it feels really, really, really good. It feels really nice. I, it makes me really happy that I, um, that I've stuck with something for 15 years. You know, I just read a book by a guy named Pete Davis that just came out called Dedicated. And he kind of talks about uh, our current culture. I think he calls it a culture in, in permanent browsing mode where we're always browsing. We're always selecting something new, whether that is, you know, a new tab to open up to to read a new story or whether that's a new career or a new romantic partner or a new whatever. And, and his book is about staying dedicated to, um, for better or for worse, a certain path. and um, that that is what I reading that book. I I felt a lot of kinship with him, and um, I feel like I'm finally you know staring down the barrel of forty years old here pretty soon. I, I feel very happy that even when it was tough, uh, I just I, I stuck with the same job, and um, it's still tough now to a certain degree. Like you don't, it's tough to scratch out a living as a musician, especially mm-hmm. you know if if you got a house and you got kids and and stuff like that. It's tough. That being said. Some parts of it have really gotten better and feeling competent at something and being able to feel joy at the same time. This is new territory for me and it's very, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, I totally get that. I have extreme anxiety and I would be so uh, beside myself every time I open the mic to say something on the radio and it's, I would try to say to myself, just, just enjoy this one. And it was, it, it's still has never well, now it's sort of like automatic and I don't do live radio very much at mm-hmm. all anymore. But yeah, there's And, and it hasn't gotten better at all over time? No, like uh, live radio for sure, because there was always like some kind of task to accomplish. I think tasks really mess with me. Like the idea, particularly like a task that you have to like hit in real time at a... Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean there. The list I, of I'm... things to accomplish in 30 seconds. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that is, I feel you on that one. When I stopped drinking before shows, I developed this, ah, phobia would be too strong of a word because it wasn't that difficult to to get through. I don't think it was quite to a clinical level, but I, I developed a really bad worry that I would forget lyrics on stage. And I would never forget lyrics on stage. I pretty much always hit my mark. Yeah. And yet I was all freaked out about it for a long time. And, and the bummer of that is usually they say, you know, when you have anxiety about things, I think the professionals on this always talk about how like exposure therapy is like a great thing. Like the more you do it, the more you'll become comfortable with it. Mm. And I, I never, it didn't really improve. I, I was having to, like, <laughs> to do it all the time. It sounds like you as a DJ for your living, you were having to do it all the time and it didn't improve. So yeah, yeah I don't know. It's, it's a bummer when things don't, um, when you just have to kind of like live with it. So in reading about your 2019 record, The Flood in Color with Kenneth Pattengale of the Milk Carton Kids, like you were talking about the songwriting process for that record. He said something to you like, I will tell you when you have enough good songs. And then you were writing for like nine months and until he finally was like, OK, this is a good one. Um, is that that's all true, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It took him about nine months to accept even one song. Wow. Um, how did that experience like 
change your writing or change the way you might collaborate with someone? I don't think it would change how I collaborate with people in the future because my relationship with him is so specific and there was so much trust built into it. I'd known him for so long. Um, that was, there's very few people that I would creatively trust as much as Kenneth. So I don't, so that's not something that you can take and then just map that onto somebody else right. uh, that you meet because okay. it takes time to build trust. Um, what did I take away from that process? It, it's weird too. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to like evade the question here, but it's like, um, I needed in that time to take that long. I needed a reset writing wise. Yeah. Um, so it kind of was like a gift that yeah, he was like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to make you do this because maybe, maybe he, I don't know if he would know that you would need that time or not. He did. We were, we were pretty close buddies and, um, uh, he, he knew what I needed. And I, I don't know that, that process was so meticulous I have neither the time nor the inclination or the money to do a process that meticulous. I didn't release an album for four years. You know, um, I don't know how I made a living that time in that time in retrospect. Um, so I, I just, I won't be able to repeat that process mm -hmm. again, but I, I don't know that I need to, you know, I, I took some things away from it that I, I think the main thing that I took away from it is he really reminded me what my strong suits are and what my weak suits are. And, lets me play to the former and and stay away from the latter basically mm, that's cool so when you first started the podcast the working songwriter in 2016 you were asking your friends well what was that experience like of like getting to know your friends in that context um well you know when it was first just friends on it was more of like letting the audience who was listening know what those friends were like, because I, I think a lot of the conversations we were having were, were pretty close to what we would normally have on, on the phone privately and, mm. and together. So uh, it was certainly a learning process of how to structure it in a way to, to get that sort of feeling across to other listeners. But um, it, it was less about me learning about them and, and more about um, me taking what I learned about them and trying to present it to a, a larger audience. Now, I mean, now, now I'm interviewing people that, that I don't know uh, mm -hmm. pretty much exclusively. And, and so that is much more of a process now of, of getting to know people on, on the phone to a certain degree. So in learning how to do interviews with people, when did you really feel like you did a really good interview with somebody and what was, what was it that made it so great? I think the best interview that has been on the show is one that I did with a musician named Todd Snyder. And it was about a week before the pandemic started. It was backstage at the Birchmere in Virginia. I've known Todd for a decade. I opened for him when I was first getting started at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. Um, and from that day, even when I was just like a local musician, you know, got a lucky break getting to open for him. He brought me into his green room, had me talk to him, gave me advice. Um, and so interviewing him there for, for the podcast, it was you know, 10 years of us being buddies and, um, me understanding Todd, me, um, I love him deeply. And so, he, and he is, um, he's a guy that might be a little bit more guarded in an interview if he doesn't feel that love from, uh, the person talking to him. But I think he felt that from me. He knows how much I respect him, how much I love him. And, um, I think that that opened him up to a certain degree. Mm, that feels good. It does. Yeah. The opposite of that feels terrible. 
It does. When you're like bombing in an interview. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, I know the feeling, but you know, sometimes I have this feeling of like, look, this isn't, 1994 and you're not uh you know madonna on a press junket right now you're not you know lenny kravitz (laughs) on a press junket or kurt cobain or 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 whoever like you know like if you're doing my plucky little podcast it's because your publicist told you that you need the listens or the views you know what i mean so it's like yeah i feel like when people are like really bummed out about doing an interview where they're really closed up in that way um obviously it could be my fault as an interviewer maybe sometimes it is but i get really frustrated when i feel like you know i've really done the research here i'm treating you with a lot of respect um if you didn't want to do this interview that's fine i'll talk to somebody else you know what i mean but don't come on the show and then try to act too cool. I mean, you're, no one that I'm interviewing is that famous, you know what I mean, that you're allowed to act too cool, mm-hmm. you know? How do you feel about um, interviewing people that you are like a very big fan of? I don't enjoy it uh, because I'm so nervous beforehand. Um, and so I'll, and then when it's done, it's done. And, and I kind of, you know, some some basketball coaches talk about, you know, it's how good it feels to win pales in comparison of how good it feels afterwards to have not screwed up. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and that's the only pleasure that I get out of it. Not like I, I finish an interview and like throw my arms up in the air and say, well, I just interviewed Lucinda Williams. She's my hero. Uh you know, I did it and I didn't screw up and she didn't think I was an idiot. It's, it's just more of a feeling of relief. And I'm glad, you know, I'll be able to tell my kids one day, I, I, hey, I got to talk to Lucinda Williams on the phone and, and ask her a few questions. Isn't that cool? Uh, but that, you know, and that's I live to tell the tale. <laughs> I live to tell the tale. Exactly. <laughs> what is um, the production and um, preparation process look like for the episodes? I do it all myself. Uh, this is part of keeping the business pretty skinny. For a while, I had uh, an engineer mixing it some for me. And then um, for a while, I had a, a, a listener who was, um, who was like a researcher for Bloomberg News who offered to do that pro bono for me. Um, but eventually, it just got to the point where <laughs> I couldn't afford uh, the mixer anymore. And it, it was just more streamlined with me doing the work myself. Uh, so... Yeah, it's it's me doing the research. It's me setting up questions for the interview. It's me calling the person. It's me setting it up with their publicist, uh, editing it on, you know, Logic, uh, uh, putting it out on, you know, I'm a one-man band. That, mm-hmm. That's the only way that I can make it work um, economically. I think people don't understand the amount of time and dedication it takes to to make each episode. For each episode of my podcast, Basic Folk, it takes like 12 hours of work. Um, yes. Is that, is that around, around your situation too? It, it used to be, I would guess, cause I'm about five years in now doing this. Uh, I would guess that you will systematize a lot of the work that you're doing right now and that that will be cut to about a third of what it is eventually. Well, it's split um, between, it's split between several different people. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't keep well, it skinny go. over here. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's great. Yeah. Um, 
but that's good to hear. Yeah, we're we're about two years in to this podcast, yeah. but yeah, it's it's and we we do it weekly. So it's pretty insane. That's when I had to systematize. When I took the show from monthly up to weekly last year, I had to really systematize a, a lot of stuff on the mm. technical end. And, you know, it's one of those deals where you spend a couple of weeks doing all that systematizing work and you're like, I didn't really accomplish anything. I didn't get any episodes done in, in this, you know, period of time. But then when it does is it makes it a lot easier to produce the show week to week. And I can get mm. it done a lot, lot faster. So how do you know if it's worth it to like keep doing the podcast? Like, is there an audience there? Is it growing? Yeah, it's, it's been worth it for me because it's, it's grown um, in its listenership. And then it's also um, really helpful for me because, you know, my main thing is, is playing and writing music myself. So I, I've basically always used the, the podcast as my Trojan horse to either bring in new audience members <laughs> or to, uh, I'm serious, you spring man. it on them. <laughs> you know, well, I just done so many, I put out so many damn albums. Um, and you know, you, you put out the PR pitch of, okay, Joe Pug puts out his fourth album. Who cares? Like really, who cares? Besides the people that listen to my music who are like fans already, who cares that mm -hmm. some dude puts out, you know, his, his fourth album. And is it really good? Maybe it is. Maybe it is really good. There's a lot of really good music in the world. You know what I mean? So how mm. do you, how do you reach people? And, um, so, you know, f four, five, six years ago, I, I came up with this idea to like, well, I think that there's a, a side way in to, to people's attention. And, and if you really like give them something if, and podcasts are free for people to listen to. Um, if you give them something, maybe they will allow you into their orbit. And that's what I found. I mean, I, you know, I would say at least 50% of the people coming to my shows now either found out about the music via the podcast or, or are at least, you know, regular listeners of the mm. podcast. So they're reminded of what I do. They're reminded to check my tour schedule, you know? So it's, um, it's worth it for me to keep doing it because it's, um, it keeps my music relevant in a way that just putting out a press release saying, Hey, I worked really hard on an album and it sounds really good. And I spent a bunch of money producing it. No one, no one cares. Just nobody cares. Um, and that's fine. You have to find your way around that mm -hmm. uh, to get people to care. You have to let them know why they should care. Mm -hmm. I like it. All right, uh, Joe, let's do the lightning round. Okay. Okay, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Come As You Are. Nirvana? Yeah. Okay. There's also a Catholic hymn called uh, Come As You Are. Well, I was born in 1984, so <laughs> I, I was prime years for, yeah. Uh, for, yeah. Dogs or cats or something else? Like dogs, but don't think that I'll ever own a pet of any kind. Mm. What is your coffee order? I had to quit drinking coffee because I'm an old person and it gave me vertigo and now I drink Earl Grey tea. Oh. I know, it's a bummer. really sad. It's really sad. It is. There's, there's no, nothing good about it. Who is your first celebrity crush? Sporty Spice. <laughs> um, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? A guy uh, who goes by the name of Chicago Farmer, named Cody, out of uh, Chicago. Nice. What is your favorite podcast? I like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Probably Nirvana in Utero. Mm. What was your first concert? 
God, great question. And boy, do I have a great answer for you. Uh, first of three, The Rentals, which was a band by the bass player in Weezer, who had a the kind of a one-hit wonder band that had a hit song called Friends of P. And uh, then, I know that song. Mid, yeah. Uh. So rent, Rentals, middle band, main support, silver chair, uh headliner red hot chili peppers at the the now demolished united center in uh landover maryland there you go silver chair was like my top band as a middle oh, i schooler. love silver chair yeah fun fact they made me and all my friends uh go back to the car and put our our chain wallets back in the car because yeah. couldn't take them in, couldn't <laughs> take them in. wow what a moment in time yeah um what was the last book you read? You seem to read a ton of books. I have been reading uh, the the Lonesome Dove series from the dearly departed Larry McMurtry. So I just went back and hmm. reread uh, Lonesome Dove. And now I'm reading Streets of L- Laredo, which is after that. And then I'm going to go back and uh, read um, the prequels to Lonesome Dove, which I never have before. Going to be busy. I'm going to the beach next week, so I'm going to be... I was about to say I'll be reading on the beach, but I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, so I'm not going to get to read or relax at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Star Trek or Star Wars? Neither. Okay, Joe, this is the last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I would say the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in D.C. Mm, Nice. Well, thank you so much, Joe Pug. I appreciate it. Thanks for the interest, Cindy. I appreciate it. Basic Folk This Week was produced by Laura McCarthy. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. And Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Please share this episode if you enjoyed it with your friends, with your family, with your very intelligent young nieces and nephews, um, with strangers you meet on the street, uh, vaccinated people. Uh, masked, unvaccinated people, whatever. You know, it, it really is helpful to share uh, episodes of Basic Folk that you enjoyed. So I very much appreciate it. I'm Cindy House, and you can find episodes wherever you get podcasts or at basicfolk.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.